Today, I've got award-winning chef, restaurateur, best-selling author, and TV personality, Michael Simon. You're going to hear Michael's great stories about growing up in a food and football family, how a grisly wrestling injury changed the path of his life, his days as an ultra-competitive iron chef, and how following his passion and trusting his gut has made him one of America's most popular chefs. Well, Michael, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to have a blast. I hope you do too. We're recording this at cocktail hour where you are. So dinner is looming. You're sitting there in your kitchen. So the obvious question is, what are you making for dinner tonight? You know what? It's funny. We were going to have some people over for dinner tonight. And then we had a last minute change of plans. And I'm in Long Island, um, <clears throat> which I am I'm most summer situation. So we are going to go. There's a little... Uh, chowder house called Boswick's. We're going to go out for dinner tonight. I'm probably going to get some grilled lobster and I'll be very yeah. happy. <laughs> you made the same thing Jen and I made. You made reservations tonight. We're going to eat at a bourbon distillery out here in Colorado, but I will, in your honor, order some barbecue or some smoked meat or something like that off the I menu. Love I love it. Hey, food was so important growing up in, in your house. Food and sports, and we'll get into both of them, but Talk about just being a young kid when, when great food was being prepared, whether it was the Greek side or the Sicilian side, you had it covered. And, and obviously that spoke to you at a young age, unlike my, my Irish English background where we, we didn't quite get that adventurous in the kitchen of my family. <laughs> well, Chris, I mean, most of my friends are, a good amount of my friends are Irish. So needless to say, they ate at our house a lot when I was a kid. So, uh, but, you know, my, my, my mother... I had a Greek Sicilian mother and, and food was just, it was a big deal in our house. You know, she was a stay home mom until I was in high school. Um, and she cooked every single meal. Uh, her mom was a great cook. Actually, my dad's side of the family too. Great cooks. Uh, so we always, we always ate at home. We rarely went out to dinner. Um, and, but like what even made me more kind of romanced by the whole thing is like, there were certain things my mom would cook when it was when people were coming over or you know it was celebratory or a holiday and and you know so those i remember like those aromas and then i remembered like the happiness that it brought those people like when they came over so it was it was a big connect for me and we always i mean we had dinner at the kitchen table seven days a week so that was where for me as a kid like all the lessons were learned. You know, I was in sports, my sister was in sports, but ev everything would get discussed at that table nightly. Um, you know, whether it was school or sports or what's going on in your life or, you know. Uh, so that was, it wasn't only like the, where we ate, but it, it was also the landing spot of our family on, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, your grandparents are important to you. Mine were very important to me, but food was not important to them. So they might go Swanson's dinners, chicken pot pie, Sara Lee pound cake. I still loved them. My grandmother introduced me to sports. That's the reason I have the career I have. But food right. did not go hand in hand with sports as it did in your family. You, you were a family of athletes. I mean, I know your uncle was Pete Duranco. If you're an old time Notre Dame fan, you know that name. I'm a Broncos fan. He was yep. a legend with the Broncos and yet a bunch of football players and athletes in the family. So uh, sports and food seems like they were kind of equally important, maybe. Yeah, they, they were huge. You know, like I, uh, you know, my uncle Pete was obviously tremendous athlete. That whole, that Duranco side of the family, that Eastern European side of the family was, uh, 
I mean, there were just a lot of great athletes in that side of the family. My, my God, my grandpa was the oldest of eight boys. Um, and he was a pipe fitter. You know, they were, they, uh, he grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, you know, steel town, but all eight boys, terrific athletes. My grandfather was a scratch golfer, most taught himself how to golf. Um, and shot his age every year between when he was 65 and 96, he shot his age at least once a year. Um, so it, the, the, the athletic gene was, was pretty strong in my family. Michael, what did the example of your grandfather mean to you as a child? I mean, the lessons must've been too numerous to name, but what, what do you remember most from, from his example that you've lived with since then? Well, you know, he was, he was a giant, you know, arguably the biggest influence on my life. You know, my father worked at Ford Motor Company and worked midnights. So my dad basically worked seven days most weeks. And I would spend weekends with my grandparents, um, with my dad's mom and dad. Um, and so I was with them almost as much as my parents when I was younger. And and like from the food, from the food side of things, my grandmother worked at Higby's in downtown Cleveland. So close to Higby's in downtown was the West Side Market. So I, I would go with my grandparents on uh, like Friday night, Saturday, uh, like early afternoon. We would go to the West Side Market. We'd buy all the food for dinner that night. Then we'd pick up my grandmother at, at Higby's and then we'd drive home and they would start cooking. So from a food aspect, um, it was it was a tremendous influence. And then my, my grandfather lived to 103. He just passed away a couple of years ago. And, he was healthy basically the whole time of, of mind and body, um, which was incre incredible. And like his, the line he's, I used to always say, Pap, what's your secret? He's like, always take the stairs. That was it. <laughs> he goes, elevators, escalators, eh. always take the stairs. Do you, do you always take the stairs? Always take the stairs. So like you, I travel a lot. And when I fly into Vegas, like, and I got to get up and it's like, you know, it's like that really long, stairwell up to the terminal and i like no matter how much luggage i have on my shoulders i'm like god damn it here we go time to take this and i, I thought you're gonna tell me if you stayed in the 30th floor of the hotel you're taking the stairs come on there's a limit to grandpa's message no, i'm in a hotel i take the elevator <laughs> <laughs> i think there's few things in life more precious than the love of a grandmother what about your grandmother that you remember most fondly or that you learned the most from well I, both of them were great you know um my, my mother's um, mom, my grandmother on my mom's side was from Sicily. Um, she was very tough. Um, I mean, loving, but very strict, very tough. Um, but like the ultimate perfectionist, um, in, in, insane cook. Uh, but like when you, their house, I can't even explain to you how clean their house was. Like it was like <laughs> everything was in its place all the time. I mean, it was insane. So like, I, I think attention to detail, like, kind of things, I really, that was from her for certain. Um, and my my dad's mom, my grandfather was the oldest of eight boys. My grandmother was the youngest of 12. So they came from, like, you know, separate worlds in that sense. Um, but my, my grandmother was always, like, just one of those people that was, uh, like, incredibly kind and warm. Like, I never heard her say... A bad thing about like a single human I, I just never never crossed her lips like she just never had anything bad she could find the good in anything she was the ultimate optimist 
Um, and, and so I think I really learned, you know, optimism and the glass is always, you know, half full, not hem half empty uh, from her. And also that side of the family, she was the Duranko. So the love of sports comes really from, I mean, she, my grandmother was the biggest diehard football fan you could ever, I mean, it was insanity and she could rattle off every stat on every team. Like it was insane. And, and her sisters were like, they were all like that, you know? So uh, I learned a lot about sports. I mean, I learned from my dad and my grandparents, but really the person that really taught me like about like, the first thing that I learned, my dad, the first thing my, he always did, the first thing I learned how to read was the sports page. Like, here's how you read the sports page. And, but the person that really taught me how to like follow stats and like adore the statistics of sports was my grandma. I cannot believe we have that exactly in common. My parents were not into sports at all. We got dropped off at my grandparents' house. My mom uh, couldn't have cared less, but her mother sat in the backyard in a folding chair with a transistor radio and a baseball scorebook and scored every single Cubs games. So I, I learned to embrace sports, stats and sports, and that's why I wanted to do this for a living, was listening to games on the radio with my grandmother. So I, I will never forget that that gift that she gave me, you know, the gift of sports fandom. Hey, football and food seem to go together, Michael. You're a big fan of both. You're uniquely qualified to talk about it. But, but why is that? And what were football Saturdays and Sundays like for you growing up? And what are they like now? Um, you know, as, as a kid, we were a very kind of a, a slightly divided family um, in sports because I had, you know, my uncles played for Notre Dame. And so, like, half the family was a Notre Dame family and half the family was Ohio State family. Um, and, <laughs> like... It took me a long time, I think, to kind of pick a side. I just, you know, when I was younger and then even in high school, I cheered for both teams. Um, as And then as I got older, I got more and more Buckeye. Uh, I favored the Buckeyes more and more. Um, but, you know, there was a moment where I thought I was, like, I thought about, I wanted to go to Notre Dame to wrestle, not to play football. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I really was in love with the whole Notre Dame allure for a long time. Uh, but, but I'm a hardcore Buckeye fan now. And then the food came in, like we would, we usually, my parents' house is usually where we watched all the sports. So it was, there was always food getting cooked. We were always around the table. And then as I got older and got season tickets and things of that to the Browns games, like, you know, tailgating was always a huge thing for us at the games. Well, I have experienced the Michael Simon cooking in regard to football and that backdrop. Uh, and I have to tell you that, you served up some great food in Tallahassee, Florida, but kind of a cross promotion when you were co-host of the Chew. We were doing game day. You were there, and, and meat was coming off the grill, was coming up to the set. But all of it, all of it was going to Desmond Howard from Cleveland, Kirk Herbstreet, ex-Ohio State quarterback. I think I had to say, uh, you know, Michael could, yeah, you know, when you, when you get a chance, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're done serving the Ohio superstars, could I just get a little plate of something over here? You eventually got around to it, but I haven't forgotten that. I mean, in my defense, it's really defensible. I mean, I, I got nothing. I mean, I don't remember as much. Des, I, like, Des and I graduated from high school at the same time, you know? So, like, I've known Des. Like, he played football. I Like, St. Edwards, the high school that I went to yeah. in high school, my senior year was our 10th straight national title and 17th straight state title. So, it was, 
the predominant wrestling program in the country. And we had a very good football team too, as the Desmond, but we used to beat St. Joe's my senior year when they had Des and Gerbach. Wow. You know, so, I mean, Desmond was in high school a running back, which I know you know all this, you know, but he was an elite running back. And then when he went to Michigan, it was when he became the receiver. Um, so, you know, we had a running back at our school named Chris Williams, who was probably the best running back in the state of Ohio at the time, followed by Desmond. So there was always a lot of competition um, between those two. And then at college, Des went to, to receiver, obviously, at Michigan and did the Heisman pose against Ohio State. I don't even need to get in all of that, you know. So he's been... Um, you know, when we were in high school, the, my high school got to break his heart a lot. Once he went to college, he just ripped my heart out. Like, I don't <laughs> well, I want to talk about your sports background. You mentioned St. Edwards in Cleveland, wrestling a dynasty, to say the least. You were a wrestler. I know you played a lot of sports, but wrestling seemed to connect with you. There's a dude in front of you. Go attack him and take him down. And that seemed to make sense to to a young Michael Simon. I did a show called Scholastic Sports America. We went to St. Ed's and profiled that wrestling program, you know, mid eight, right around when you were there. I don't know if we crossed paths or if you were on that team, but we covered that team. And and if you, if you got a chance to wrestle for them, you were legit. And I know you thought that maybe that was going to be your path to college and who knows where before kind of food took over. But that wrestling career, I mean, it's, it's pretty grisly. Des- describe it as much as you want to about what sort of detoured that? When I wrestled at St. Ed's, our coach was a name named uh, a gentleman by the name of Howard Ferguson, who had a tremendous influence on my life. He passed away uh, two years after I graduated. And he also wrote a book called The Edge, which, you know, a lot of young athletes, uh, he put together a book called The Edge, which a lot of young athletes uh, looked at at that time. He was a tremendous influence on my life. And, um, you know, basically, if you went to St. Ed's, you got a full ride to college. I mean, that's just, if, if you were good enough to make the Eds team, you, you, you went to college for free. That was basically how it worked. And, and I was a, a, a good wrestler, you know. Um, my junior year uh, in a wrestle-off um, in the room, um, I posted out on a cradle and my, my arm just it snapped. So, like, the, basically what Joe Theismann did to his leg, I did to my arm. That's the easiest way oh, to explain man. That, so that's called a compound fracture. And that means bone through skin. Wow. Right. So, like, if you form, there's, like, a little zipper there still. But you have the two bones coming up. The one compounded fracture, that was actually the good break. The other break, one shattered. And I dislocated my elbow all in, like, a fell swoop. So, and it was in a match. Obviously, the match stopped. They brought me to the hospital. I, I had to got I got put in a plate and fourteen screws in my arm. So, you know, I've been wrestling since I've been six. You know, so I, it was just a way of life for me. And and the the guy that did my surgery was a very famous surgeon who used to do all the Browns at the time. And and you know, he said you're probably the chances of you wrestling again in high school are very rare. This is about halfway through my junior year. Now, again, my dad was, I come from a sports family. My, my father worked at Ford. He's a tough blue collar guy, as was my grandfather and stuff. So I'm like, well, you know, so I have the cast on for about six months and I get the cast off and I, you know, I start, I was like, dad, it doesn't, you know, I started lifting again lightly and working out and I ran when I had the cast on and all that kind of stuff. And, and I said, dad, it feels pretty good, you know? And he goes, well, you know, start 
practice it a little bit with some of your buddies, see how it feels, you know, don't tell your mother. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm practicing with some of my buddies about two months before the season starts. And I wake up one morning and, and again, my dad worked midnight. So typically when I was going to school in the morning, he was getting home from work for the most part, you know, so I'd like say hi to him. And I go to school, you know, he, then he would sleep. So I wake, I, I come downstairs. I'm like, damn, my arm feels really weird. He goes, let me look at it. And I didn't really look at it. I was still kind of like half awake. And my forearm, like, instead of being this big, was like this big. And he's like, oh, shit, oh, God, you know, like, I'm going to pick you up after school before I go to work. We'll go see Bell, who is a doctor. We'll see. So I had broken the plate. Oh, in the oh, 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 wow. So they had to go in, re-break it, re-surgery, replay it. And then I was in a cast for a year and six months. So basically over the whole tenure of the thing, I was in a cast for about two years. Um and, you know, we're a middle-class family. My sister was an, a, an elite gymnast, you know, an Olympic hopeful gymnast. And I was a wrestler. You know, my, my dad thought we'd both get four eyes to college. And um, so I'm like, well, I got I to gotta get a job. So I started working in restaurants. My buddy's dad owned a restaurant. I started working in restaurants when I was like 16, um, 16, 17, and just fell in love with the business. Now, this is before Food Network and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't a great student, you know. Um, Do you reflect so- on that, though? I mean, listen, I've, I've talked to so many athletes whose careers have ended not on their terms, and it's a heartbreak. I mean, your oh. identity. And then, but then if you reflect back now, the, the way the universe kind of serves up these plot twists, who knows if you're sitting there where you are now, had you gone to college and a wrestling scholarship. When I told my father I wanted to go to culinary school, he's like, no, no, your grandfather was a tradesman. You know, like you're not, you're, you're, you're going to get an education, you know? So, um, I, I went to Cleveland state for a semester and I got a, a, a point two. And point two. <laughs> a point okay, two. That's a Blutarski, almost a Blutarski GPA. Almost Blutarski. <laughs> and my dad, I remember him going like, how did you get a point two? And like, I just didn't want to be there at the end of the day. I'm like, I got a point two because I literally didn't go to a single class. I, I never attended a single class and I got a point That's two. That's how you get a point two in college. It's, it's, it's not easy to do, but if you never go to a single class, I mean, but I want, I want to go back to that decision because one of my favorite topics is young people trying to forge their own path and listen to their gut and their heart because even though people who love you and who have more wisdom than you give you advice. It doesn't necessarily mean that they know what is best for you. And your inner voice told you something else. And, and you follow that direction to CIA. And I think that's powerful because so many young people struggle with that. It, it, you know, I was very fortunate. Like I flunked out of college, obviously I was still working in restaurants. I still loved it. And you know, my dad is like, he shrunk a little now, but he was like six, four. And my mother's about 4'11". But my mother's billion. And if you come from like that family, you understand it a little bit. So everyone, no one's afraid of my dad, really. Everyone's petrified of my mom. You know, she wielded the hammer. So she had had enough. And she's like, he's going to culinary school. Listen, with the discussion's over. Like, it was like, <laughs> he's going. And, I, you know, and I went to CIA and I graduated top of my class. And, you know, and, and like, it just worked in for my brain like I'm ADD so 
the restaurant business, I think that there's probably a lot of chefs. If you did a, you know, a, a test, like chefs that have attention deficit, I'll bet you'd be like 75%. You threw that out there casually. Top of your class, CIA is not the Central Intelligence Agency, if you don't know it, Culinary <laughs> Institute of America. And it's kind of like the Oxford or the Harvard for cooking. And, and to go in there after you struggle in college and do that well, I mean, first of all, it must have been thrilling to connect with something that you found, I don't know if it was easy, but it seemed much more natural to you. And then tell me what that was like when that, that, that light bulb came on. You said, this is for me. I, I got to tell you, it was easy for me. It was the first time I had ever went to school of, like wrestling was easy for me. Sports were easy for me. School was not easy for me. My sister was a graduate from high school, like a 4'4", four, four, you know, like school was easy for her. It was not easy for me. I hated it. I, I didn't do well in it. And I, I just didn't like it, you know, quite frankly. I liked the social aspect of it, but I didn't like the, I, I, I didn't love going to school. And I went to culinary school and I immediately loved it. Like just loved it. And everything made sense. Everything clicked. You know, it just was, it was easy for me. And, and you know, mainly because like sports that I did okay and it, it it just it was enjoyable like I loved doing it you know it's it's like television I, I love doing it and I never feel like I go to work ever you know so like when I'm at the restaurants or I'm on TV it, it just doesn't feel like work to me that's beautiful that that is that's the secret to happiness right then you know love what you do and I, I think that what's also impressed me about you is you've pivoted and you've reinvented and reinvention pivoting is one of my favorite topics did a whole pod episode, our mutual friend, Clinton Kelly, your former co-host on The Chew, and Eddie George, a Buckeye, both told their stories about how they dramatically pivoted in life and found a new passion. And, and you did that with TV. Yeah, you know, like still a chef, still in the restaurant, still right. do all that. But it, TV, like cooking, came, it, it came relatively natural to me. Like, I, you know, in, in, um, in 1998... I won an award from Food and Wine magazine where every year they named the top best young chefs in America. So that's when I was young and I won that award. So they had me, Food Network had just started in like 95, 96. They had me on as a guest on a show called Sarah Moulton. You know, I had a blast. The, the ratings were, I guess, good. Not a lot of people watched Food Network back then. And um, then I was on again and again and again and again. And then that same year, they asked me to host a show called The Melting Pot. And I, I did that for... 200 episodes and um and then it just has continued since then and uh, you know it's um you know it's for me it's funny it's like i often think about like pivotal moments in mm -hmm. in my life and and like intuitively like you would say oh well breaking your arm got you into cooking that was like the aha moment but really i think what changed a lot for me is when i broke my arm and ferg allowed me to coach and I coached the freshmen and I also coached uh two other teams the year after that that were uh you know like fifth to eighth graders and and teaching and and working with these kids and like getting them to a certain level was like really fulfilling for me and what I quickly learned as I you know went from a you know a line cook to a sous chef to an executive chef to an owner 
is to, to have a successful restaurant. It, it's, you have to be able to cook, obviously, but you have to be able to teach. Um, and so that just clicked in my brain. And then when I'm on television, like the one thing that I pride myself in the most is, you know, most people that watch our shows, whether it's Simon's Dinners we're doing in our backyard or the new show I'm doing, Barbecue USA, um, like when I, when you like read the whatever on social, like they always say, I learned so much from his shows. And that makes me so happy because, you know, obviously at the end of the day, we need to entertain. Like it's our job to entertain the people watching. But if, if I could give them a skill, a life skill, or they could learn like one thing, two things uh, during one of those shows, like that's when I feel like as a chef or a person or a teacher or a TV personality, like that's what I feel like for me personally, I've succeeded. Yeah. That's a wonderful side of it. Another side of it is the competitive side. And we talked about how ultra competitive you are. So you go on iron chef, which is the OG cooking competition show. So many sprang from that, but it was also like, it was kind of like the MMA of cooking. You guys were built up like, like athletes. You had these big entrances, you came out and then it was like, I mean, kill or be killed. You're making food, but something about that competitive part just connected with you and you kicked ass on the show. You almost never lost those head-to-head battles. I mean, what was it about that? that (laughs) So so they did a a next Iron Chef. Like, they did a first run of Iron Chefs where they had three Iron Chefs, and then they decided they needed to add, you know, a Iron Chef. So the next season, the first season, they did a next Iron Chef, and there were... 10 of us competing for this spot, like 10 elite chefs around America. I won that and then I became an iron chef. And, um, but for me, like it got me right back into wrestling mode. I'm like, let's go. Like when, when iron chef would start and like, it was like, I look over me versus them. Let's go. But that's not the same thing as go as trying to, you know, break a guy down and pin him. I mean, how is working with food and you, how is it the same thing? Because it's like, I, like, it's interesting. Like, Iron Chef is interesting in the sense where a lot of the people we were cooking against are people that we were friends with and we'd known in the business forever. And they would come on that show and they wanted to kill you. Like, <laughs> come on. They, they knew that if they could beat one of us, it was a big feather in their cap, you know? So, you know, I'm pretty, like, I, you know, people that know me, like, I, you know, I like to have fun. I, I like to laugh. I like to have a good time. I like, you know, but I'm also very competitive. Like, that's the other side of it. So, like, the first couple, after the first couple of years I did Iron Chef, like, I remember when I went from Iron Chef to The Chew, like, when people started watching The Chew, they're like, well, he's really nice. We never knew he was really nice. Like, because I was just like, we're going. Here we but, go. But when you say kill, I mean, look, what, what do you, you can't, like, reach over and dump a bucket of salt in their food. Are you trying to get no. in their head? Are you, tr- d- d- does the trash talk mental combat work in that kind of a thing? Yeah, it's some trash talk, you know, but there's also, like, you know, one thing about the culinary world is it's big, but it's very small. So when you're going against somebody, you know what they're capable of. You know, like, this ingredient's going to favor them. You know, you know all those things. So you just have to bring, you have to bring your A game for a straight hour and you can't hiccup. So like, if I like over there, like trying to take the person down, no. But like, I do know that for an hour, I need to be perfect. 
you know? And so that it becomes more of a competition with myself at that right. point. Um, but I know if I could challenge myself enough, then I'm going to win, you know, and, and not well, that I understand more when you, when you're ultra competitive against your own standard, which I've talked about, that makes sense to me more than trying to like beat the shit out of the guy cooking food next to you. I know that's the point of a competition show. Yeah, not, not, like I just want to win. Like that's <laughs> so like it's it's. it's if you lost, of, when you lost the rare loss, were you gutted? Were you devastated? I, you know, I'm, a, um, as my friends like to tell me, they're like, you lose with such grace, but man, when you win, you are the, <laughs> so I lose like, and I mean, it was kind of like, you know, wrestling in that really elite program for being involved with that elite program for such a long time at St. Edwards. If you lost and you didn't lose, you know, graciously, Ferg would have ripped our hearts out. I mean, like, you lost, you went up, you shook the person's hand, you shook the coach's hand. You know, if you want to be upset, you do it off the mat. Like, you, you need to carry yourself a certain way. So, um, you know, that has stuck with me most of my life. But I do, like, yesterday, I, I, I uh, Flay and I golfed and we get to the 18th hole and we pay on birdies and, you know, we play, we play like front back total with automatic presses, but we also pay on birdies and Sandy's. So there's like, so I'm down, he's got a birdie. I don't have a birdie on the front. Nine. We only can play nine. Um, he's got a birdie. I don't have a birdie on the front nine and we're even on the match. Um, so, you know, we get to the last hole, it's a par five. I birdie, I, I win the hole, I birdie the hole, and I get a Sandy. So, <laughs> I found bet. By the time it was over, I was, and he's as every bit as competitive as me. And we get off the thing, and he just looks at me, and I'm like, I just went like this. Three, baby. <laughs> three points. One hole, three points. You, you're like a lot of people I know. You're a, you're a good loser, but you're a bad winner. <laughs> but but I, I love I love the power of sports. You've referenced the influence of your coach a few times already and the, the lessons. I, I think it's a powerful thing that the people that haven't been involved in sports don't fully understand. But I can tell when you, you keep talking about your wrestling coach and uh, the, the number of ways that he influenced you and the lessons you took from him, you bring back and all kinds of things whether it's cooking, I'm sure in the business world and anything else. So um, that that's very cool for you to express that. Of all the meals you've created, sir, whether it's on a competition show or just for a couple of guests, is there one that stands out where you go, everything was perfect, nothing could have been improved upon, nothing could be better, and that you're most proud of? Yeah. Um... One dish or one meal? competition it was so we used to do these holiday battles um iron chef holiday battles where it was like iron chefs versus iron chefs and bobby and i would never really compete against each other because of our friendship we just didn't you know we compete enough like in golf and everything else so we're like we weren't going to do it on tv so we him and i were always partners it was always bobby and i versus whomever and we were going against alex guanichelli and um jeffrey zakarian and it was a Thanksgiving battle. And the, uh, I made, so, so my Italian heritage, you know, 
dish that I grew up with is porchetta, where you take the, you know, the, the, the belly of the pork and you roll it and cook it very slow and crisp the skin. And, and so Bobby and I would, when we would do any of these things together, we'd look at the altar, you know, and we'd like grab ingredients and he'd be like, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Like, like we would just work what we're going to make. And I'm like, I'll take the Turkey and two sides. Like, okay, I got this. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I'm, I, I worked for a butcher for a long time. So I'm very good at butchering meat. So I like broke down the whole Turkey and I rolled it into itself and made a porchetta out of Turkey. And we called it a turchetta. And, um, and it was lights out and like, it haunts Alex Guanaschelli. Like, <laughs> like if someone brings up like anything on, uh, you know, your worst moment on Iron Chef, it'll just say like, fuck it, Turquetta. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just boom, that's it. Like, <laughs> and so because we're all so competitive with each other, that one like really sticks in my mind um quite a bit uh and so i was what about the flip side man they're not all amazing successes i mean is there anything you cook where you tasted it afterwards i don't care if it's on a cooking show or at home and just said wait a minute this is awful like there's no way that a dude who went to cia top of class and won james beard and all these other awards could possibly have made this and it just goes right in the trash can (laughs) 100%. So, well, it didn't go in the trash can because I was so, like, certain in my mind that the dish would work that I just, I, I like, forced the issue a little bit. So, we were opening our first restaurant, Lola, in 1996. And, you know, Liz designs the restaurant, runs the front of the house, does the beverage programs, and, I you know, I do the food. So, this is right wife. Is, right. So, and... So she's like, you know, I had run to that point very Italian or Mediterranean-based restaurants prior to opening Lola. And she's like, what are, what are you going to do? Are we going to do Italian like we were talking about? It? I'm like, no. I'm like, you know, there's just a lot of Italian here in the city. And, I, like, I want to do something different. And I, like, I'm going to do Midwestern food. And she's like, what, is, what, is that, what does that even mean? I'm like, I'm not 100% sure yet, but just give me a second. So... You know, at the time in my mind, what it meant was like I was going to work with farmers within the area. This is before farm to table was like a thing so much. So we're going to work with local farmers and we're going to um, enhance dishes that like kind of made Cleveland the food town that it is. But we're going to chef them up or, you know, so like we did um, like probably the most the dish that kind of got the most press for me as a chef was we made beef cheek pierogi. So we made pierogi dough, braised beef cheeks, filled it, you know, with wild mushrooms and truffle and all that stuff. So that was like my breakout dish. So for every hit, like a beef cheek pierogi, there's going to be, you know, so, I, you know, I thought of Midwest, I thought pot pie, like pot pie is, you know, what everybody wants, but like, you can't, you can't put a chicken pot pie on the menu at this fine dining restaurant. So I, I, I said, I'm going to make, you know, so then I worked for French chefs a lot, young then got into Italian food whatever so you know I, I was thinking of escargot on crude you know escargot puff pastry so I was like I'm gonna make an escargot pot pie and I made it and like I remember like like we used to do this thing where we would introduce a new dish and all the servers would come around and we would taste the dish 
I'd explain it to them. Here's the ingredients. Here's how we made it. So they're equipped to go to the table. And so put out the dish and taste it. And there's nothing, no, like no reaction, nothing. (laughs) So the, the, the cooks and chefs who had worked for me for a while at that time, they came from the other restaurant with me. And I'm like, guys, none of the servers are reacting to the dish. They say nothing. <laughs> so my wife, who has always been brutally honest with me, which is a good thing, you know, I'm like, listen, servers haven't responded to the dish. The, you know, the, 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 the cooks don't seem excited about the dish. I'm like, I, I like the dish. She's like, it's an awful dish. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not working. It's, I'm like, I'm going to put a couple tweaks on it. And I'm putting it on the menu. So, so sure enough, I did that. And it was an immense failure. It was like, it was my first lesson in, in the cooking world a little bit. Like, you know, just because you're good at your craft and you know how, like, you can't will something to taste good. <laughs> like, you can't, like, like, it's going to work. You know, but like, funny when you talk to chefs, they all have like that one dish. You know, that one dish where it's like in your mind, it's part of the, like the curse of being creative. Like, you know, there's, there's chefs that just say like, I make um, pasta puntanesca and marinara and like very classic dishes where you're just trying to um, master a classic, which is great. And there's amazing chefs that do that very well. Like, I feel like I have very good technique, but I also have this like kind of creative side of me. And when you're creative, there, there is the, the risk of the, uh, the disaster. Well, I'm sure the, the dishes are much better in the mind than in the mouth. That 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 that's going to happen. And not every creative type hits a home run every time. I get it. Hey, you know, for years people said, "Hey, you don't want to know what goes on back in a kitchen. Just go to a restaurant, enjoy the food, but you don't want to know what's going on back there." Then there were books, Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. There's a TV show right now called The Bear, set in a sandwich shop in Chicago. Some people may have seen that, but there've been other examples too where the curtain gets ripped back and it looks like chaos. My brother drew was a chef at some nice places. And he used to tell me stories about the working conditions, just how stressful and how demanding and how tough and how hot and gnarly it can get back there. I mean, I'm sure that's not all the time, but what, what story do you have that, that says, you know, that symbolizes that? Yeah, you know what it is? It's, it's a tough job. There's no other way. Like, unfortunately, what's happened a little bit, the, the great thing about TV is it's it's made a profession that I have a lot of love for. Uh, people are a little bit more aware of it now than they were when I got into the business, you know, 30 plus years ago. The the hard thing about it is it's also been glamorized a little bit where people don't always necessarily... They're like, you know, they watch Food Network and these cooking shows and stuff like that. And they're like, oh my gosh, I want to be a chef. And they, they, you know, they go to school and and then they get in that restaurant environment, which, you know, like, look, I I worked for yellers and screamers and crazy people and I I didn't want to be that way. So, you know, I was a little bit crazier when I think when I was young and then like, as I matured as a person and as a chef and the confidence grows and all those things, like rarely ever, ever, ever raised my voice in the kitchen. Um, so like, I try to control the stress that way, but it's still stressful, you know, and, 
And I mean, you know, you think of it like it, like at Lola, we had 20 menu items. We had 10 starters and 10 entrees. And we had, uh, not counting pastry, which was six people on, on the main line, there were uh, 12 cooks. So basically, you know, every cook is responsible for like a, a dish or two, couple dishes. And, uh, you know, through the course of a night, you know, you do, you do 300 people through the course of a night. So, you know, every cook is putting up like a couple hundred plates. And I know customers never think of this. Like back when we opened the first restaurant, I, I on the menu just said, no special orders, don't care. I wrote it exactly like that. <laughs> like, don't care. Um, I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> Give it in a little bit. But, but like what a lot of customers don't understand is like you, you have this person cooking and you get in a rhythm and, and let's just say it's the beef cheek pierogi like the, the pickup on a beef cheek pierogi is you know you boil them you, you put them in brown butter you caramelize the, the 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 mushrooms with some fresh herbs and thyme and you lay that down on the plate with a little bit of a reduction sauce mm. um and then you shave the truffle out of it. so <clears throat> you're in the process of making 200 of those a night and all of a sudden like random orders come in no time no mush, no this, no that, sub this over here. I want this on that, you know, and it's hard to get out. It'd be like in the middle of calling a college football game. Someone said, you know what? We're playing baseball now. (laughs) (laughs) Please one sport at a time, man. One sport at a time. (laughs) And there is the customer is always right. But, but it, it sometimes creates a lot of stress on, on a, a kitchen more than you know but you want to make the customer happy like the, the rule that we kind of live with now it's like i'll do anything it takes to make the customer happy unless making that one customer happy makes 20 customers suffer like that's how i kind of look at it but um yeah it's a tough business you have to love it like i there's no if, if i just start all over again i do it i i get right i jump right back into the business like i adore the business and and I think most people that do it professionally really do. And I, I also think some of the stuff that you see on television is like when when Tony used to talk about, you know, like Kitchen Confidentials, you know, he was writing about kitchens in the 80s and stuff like that. We're rough back then. I mean, those are the kitchens I worked in. They were rough, um, but they're not quite like that anymore. And, um, you know, and then the other stuff with TV, like I really enjoyed Bear. I think it's a fun show and, and like, you know, the energy of it, but a lot of that is hyped up for, for television. It's not fun. It makes you anxious. If you're sitting there watching you, okay, this is well acted, well written, but I mean, it's, I, I'm so anxious watching it. How do these people like, you know, then they go home and they, they eat the crappiest food. I, I don't know if that's true of chefs. You're, you're around fine food. So much goes into every aspect of food. When you get hungry and you're by yourself, you know, are, are you just making a peanut brown jelly well, sandwich or whatever you like, got? We're not, um, we eat great food like basically every day, but so we're not adverse to like going home at two in the morning after you just worked a 15 hour day on the line <laughs> and like busting out like a package of ramen with some peanut butter in it. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Speaking of unconventional choices, one of the pivotal points in Michael's career was in the mid nineties when brilliant chef Thomas Keller offered an opportunity to join the opening team at what became the legendary French Laundry in Napa. He chose to stay in his hometown and work with Liz to open Lola, which became their breakthrough restaurant and a Cleveland landmark. So Michael followed his heart and his gut. You know, so I, I, I didn't take the job and, or I didn't take the opportunity, I would say. And so 
And I, you know, I don't have any regrets. I, I, Thomas and I have been very good friends for a long time now. We were in a book together called Solo Chef. And, um, <clears throat> but it, it, like, I think about it a lot. And, and, and I think, not a lot, but like a long time ago, I used to think about it a lot. And I, you know, if I went and I worked for Thomas, you know, Thomas is such a, is such a force. I believe in my heart, and I could be wrong, that I probably would have cooked a lot like Thomas. You know, I, I like I would have. You know, you work for someone, they mentor you, they they mold you, and and so there's going to be a lot of that in your food DNA. Um, where, you know, I had kind of worked for several different people and saw different things, and and then I just kind of. You know, I've learned a little bit on my own and, and it, it, it allowed me, I, I feel that it allowed me to be more expressive as a chef, maybe, um, going the route that I did. And obviously it worked. So it, it, it uh, Thomas certainly didn't miss me and <laughs> they did just fine. Yeah, without Simon, they did, that place just flopped, man. It's a shame it never got off the ground. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, it, it worked very well for, for me as, as a chef too. Um, so it, 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 uh, but yeah, it was, it was at the time it was, you know, again, Thomas wasn't Thomas chef. French laundry was just opening. I mean, the, the chef role knew him very well, but the French laundry cookbook wasn't out. But like, I remember like eating at Raquel when he was the chef there, when I was like a young cook in New York and food was just so perfect, you know? And I'm like, man, what am I doing? Like, I, this is a chance of a lifetime to work with this guy. Like, he's he's in the chef community even before French Laundry. Everybody knew how meticulous and spectacular he was as a chef. So it, it was a tough decision. It was it was a tough decision, not one that I regret, but a very tough decision at the time. Like you said, it worked out for Ball. I, I have in my hand a copy of. Your latest book, Fix It With Food. This is the second one, Every Meal Easy. We ordered this book. Amazon told us the other day they had delivered it. The box didn't show up. Uh, we thought it had been stolen. They left it outside on, on, on a road in a garage. And we thought, I wonder what the person who grabbed this Amazon box and opened it up and found um, Michael Simon's book, along with the book, The Making of the Godfather, Leave the Gun, Take the Canola. He's also a very good book. I don't know if you would have been disappointed or thrilled to get your book, but we're happy to have it because it talks a lot about something that's important to a lot of people, which is, although they love food and, and food is sustenance, food can also make people uncomfortable. It can create inflammation. Um, Jennifer struggles with that, so we're eager to dive in and see what you've got to say about foods and, and how to alleviate some of the problems because you suffer from a couple of different autoimmune diseases and, and you react to food badly at times too, right? Yeah, I have, I have RA and I have discord lupus. Um, and, you know, and my body's a little beat up from all the years of wrestling, to be quite honest, you know, the, the torn knees and broken arms and all the stuff that went with that. So, um, so inflammation is a problem with me. And, and I just didn't want to, you know, when I was younger, I just kind of pushed through it and like, whatever, I'm sore, big deal. I've been sore my whole life. So, but I'm just like, this is so stupid. I don't want to take a pill for it. I want to try it. Like, I'm a chef. Like, let me see if I could figure out, you know, how to reduce inflammation with my diet. And, you know, the old saying, you are what you eat. It's true, you know? And now 
a big part of me knows that also as a chef, I got to be able to taste and eat everything. So if I go, if I adjust my lifestyle and the way that I eat to help inflammation, I also have to know going into that, that this isn't a perfect world for me. Like, like for instance, my triggers are sugar and dairy. Well, you know, if I'm at the restaurant and someone makes a butter, a cream sauce, I, I, I have to taste it, you know, or if my pastry chef makes a great dessert, I'm going to taste it. Now, the great thing about once you learn your triggers, it's kind of like you have one bourbon, you're fine the next day. You have four, you're hungover. But sometimes you still have four. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and like that with me, with the food, you know, I was able to identify my triggers. I teach people how to do it um, in the book and then give them recipes to cook around their triggers. Um, and, and I'm very clear, like, look, this isn't a perfect world. I, I'm, I'm not, I hate the word diet. I can't stand it. I think it's like a setup for failure. Um, but here's a way to eat smart, identify what your problems are, keep them out of your diet as much as you can. And ultimately, you'll feel a lot better. Like, I feel great. Like, I, you know, I, uh, there's days where I'm a little more achy than others. But for the most part, I, I've learned how to, to this point in my life, control the inflammation very well. And that works for people as well, whether it is dairy or sugar or something. You think that just by a little investigation and then some diligence and, and making some sacrifices, they can turn around health that is, is food related? Yeah, 100%. I, you know, what, what, what I found when we when I was doing all the research for the book and talking to other people with inflammation issues and having them kind of play around with these diets for me is everyone's triggers were a little bit different. Like, you know, I have a friend that has RA, their, their trigger is flour. You know, flour doesn't affect me. I have another friend um, with lupus, not discoid, with, you know, regular lupus and um, meat was their trigger. You know, so everybody's body's just a little bit different and so we, we, through the book, we take you through in a little, little elimination period, and then you start introducing foods back in to see what the triggers are. You're obviously a positive guy. We've had fun. I, I do want to ask one thing, just from, a, from a, a chef's perspective and someone who's made their life in food. I mean, for me, it's deflating how little emphasis in this country is placed on good eating and wellness and health and how little kids are taught about food and how to eat well and and how much of our food is is processed and so far from the farm before it gets to the table and that's different from a lot of places in the world you know as an american chef does it get you down do you see hope uh, is there a pathway to a, to a healthier way of eating in this country it's a disaster I, I, you know it's it's i mean it's just at the end of the day it's a disaster the, the, the problem is current i mean there's a lot of problems with the system but you know, if you, the, the, everyone wants everything bigger, faster, cheaper. And in order to do a lot of that, people pump things with growth hormones, use pesticides. They do all these things to get the product to the people um, in a more inexpensive manner. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Uh, you know, like my, oh, I'm a chef answer would be like, like we should be helping the farmers that are doing things the right way. So then they're able to produce food in, in a manner that's a little bit more inexpensive. So everybody can get the benefits of these food. Um, because the, the, the people that unfortunately have the worst diets are the, are the people that are struggling the most financially and they don't have a choice, you know, like 
look, you and I are fortunate. We could go to the grocery store and we could say, give me the organic produce or the, the grass-fed beef and, you know, this is what I want to eat. Um, but there's a lot of people that just aren't in a position to do that. And, uh, and there's a lot of waste in America, too. It's like because we want everything to look a certain way or be a certain way, it's like the amount of produce and, and the things like that that get thrown out at our grocery stores every day would just make your mind melt you know um, and 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 there's just i'm like what why can't we give these to to food pantries oh they can't take a tomato with a crack in it or they can't you know so when people go to a grocery store and they root through 40 tomatoes to find the one that they want and they crack six of them up along the way those get thrown away you know, and, and it's just, it's horrible. So, I mean, you know, we, we try to do a lot with, um, you know, I, I work with some schools in Cleveland, Ohio, and I, you know, hopefully I can get it bigger. Like, I, I feel like if we could do our best to feed kids great right now, and, and it, it could move in that direction. It's like, you know, the, um, some of the inner city parts of, of Cleveland has these food deserts. And um, one of the schools that we work with, we told everybody like, draw, draw your neighborhood for us, you know, and we're trying to learn more about the students and they drew them and, and, you know, put where the grocery store is, the gas station. So all of their grocery stores was the gas station. You know, that's, that's where they were getting their, these, these kids were getting their food for the day at the gas station, you know? So, um, you know, if we could fix some of those issues, I think that'll help a lot, but it's, it's an uphill battle. And, and then you go like, you know, I'm lucky enough to travel, you know, you go to some of these other countries and, and, you know, we're, we're the smartest, most successful country in the world, but yet our food programs are probably worse. They're, they're probably the worst. I'm going to wrap it up, but we'll get a little more upbeat here. What is it about food that draws people together? I mean, I know sports bring people together. Music brings people together. They don't have to speak the same language, and that's on a very basic human level. But it seems like nothing brings people together and binds them and builds relationships and strengthens bonds better than food. Obviously, we've been eating communally as a species ever since we were walking up, right? That might have something to do with it. But your experience in the industry and and making great food and, and, and making people feel good around the food what, what is it about that about this that you know, makes you sort of proud to be part of that industry? You know, I, I think a, a lot of it is similar to sports and um, music in the sense. I think food has the ability to create very specific memories in people's minds. Um, and like anything that has the ability to do that and bring someone to, back to a place or create a new place for them, I feel is incredibly powerful. Like, I, you know, right when we started... Uh, the podcast I talked about, like when I smelled certain things that my mom made, I knew what was coming next, you know? And even as an adult, like when I make my mom's lasagna, I'm all of a sudden, I I just like, if I'm in a shitty mood, I make my mom's lasagna, you know, it's not as good as hers, but just that the house smells that way for a couple hours puts me in a great mood. And I think food has the ability to do that. It has the ability to transport you back to a place or create a new place. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, and I, I think that's just what does it. I think it, it, it generally makes people happy. In that sense. And so many people in the industry are, are generous souls, Michael. I, the last thing I want to ask you about is, is chefs 
instincts to help people and do good. There's so many examples of philanthropy through cooking and chefs and people like you have used your platform and your name to, to help people, whether it's through the pandemic or just through, you know, tough times. And, and what is it about people in your industry who, who feel compelled to just sort of give back and do good? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think what it is, is it's really helped the foundation of the industry. Our, our, I think the base of the reason most people are in the industry industry is they're, they're naturally giving souls that want to nourish people. You know, I think that that's like the, the core of most chefs, especially, um, you know, and so when there's a time in need, I think more like I, my guess would be more than any industry in the world. When things get bad, the first industry to jump in and try to help is the restaurant industry. Um, you know, so it's, it's just, it's how it works. We're, that's how we're wired. I, you know, I think when, when you're, you know, like you were saying earlier, oh, it's the, the stories about how tough it is in the kitchen and, and the, 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 the work is really difficult, but it also forms this tremendous bond um, with these teams of people. And, and you, you, with that bond, you take care of everybody around you in those kitchens. And I think it just, it goes beyond that, but then it, then it goes beyond that. And, um, you know, I mean, like, look, look at what Jose Andres is doing. He's doing things in the world that no one has been able to do until him. Not, no one. <laughs> like, no I mean, one. Yeah. And, and it's truly, it just stems from here's a guy who, I mean, is one of the greatest chefs in the world, but also more than that has a heart that is like, could fill a hundred rooms, you know, and he just wants to take care of people and he doesn't care. He doesn't care what it takes. He just wants to do the right thing all the time and take care of people. And um, I mean, he's the extreme example of that, but I think most chefs, are there's more chefs like Jose than chefs that are not great place to leave it. Speaking of generosity, really grateful for your time. Um, someday I'm going to crash one of your, your football parties there and, and experience your food to try to make up for the fact that I was last served in college game day. But, uh, I'll bring, I'll bring what I know best. I'll bring the bourbon and the tequila and the beer and you can take care of the rest. Is that a deal? <laughs> you guys are always welcome to the house for a Sunday supper. So I know you're busiest on Saturdays. Sundays might be a little bit hard, but you know, Clinton and David don't even have to come. You're always welcome. Mikasa Sukasa. Now Sundays I'm wide open, brother. Sa- Saturdays are busy. Sundays I'm Perfect. exhausted, but hungry. <laughs> Done. <laughs> You can look for Michael on the Food Network, hosting BBQ USA and Simon's Dinners, where he cooks in his stunning backyard. My thanks to Michael and to co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster for her great work on this episode and to editor Jason Weichel. I'll talk to you soon with more of season five of Fowler, Who You Got.